Eli Lilly, the third owner of the company in 1907, actually did his dissertation on medical marijuana at the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy. Fascinating, right? Of course, now uh, as a major pharmaceutical company, uh, someone you, you would guess stands against that sort Most of likely, uh, legalization yeah. of medical marijuana. Stay tuned. That's just part of what's ahead in our bonus content following this week's edition of In Focus. Exploring the issues that matter most in Indiana. This is In Focus with Dan Spieler. I am not protecting Mr. Trump anymore. Explosive testimony from the president's former attorney who sat with lawmakers for three days this past week. With a lot of questions now in Washington about what this means for the president. Our Matt Smith has more. An explosive day on Capitol Hill with still a lot of questions lingering. Michael Cohen, President Trump's former attorney, entered the committee room at about 10 o'clock to appear before the House Oversight Committee. He is publicly painting quite an unflattering picture of the president, telling Congress the president directed him to lie about hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels. Democrats say his testimony raises some legitimate legal questions. Republicans have spent the day discrediting his testimony and credibility. This might be the first time someone co convicted of lying to Congress has appeared again so quickly in front of Congress. I am ashamed that I chose to take part in concealing Mr. Trump's illicit acts rather than listening to my own conscience. I am ashamed because I know what Mr. Trump is. He is a racist. He is a con man, and he is a cheat. Cohen will soon be headed to federal prison himself for lying to Congress. In the newsroom, I'm Matt Smith. Dan. All right, Matt, thanks. Cohen will be back in front of the House Intelligence Committee next week. On Thursday, we got this statement from Congressman Andre Carson, who's a member of that committee, which questioned him Thursday behind closed doors. Carson says serious allegations leveled in his public hearing before the House Oversight Committee raised critical concerns as well as new lines of inquiry that must be fully pursued. While I can't disclose the details of his testimony in the House Intel Committee, the aforementioned developments make clear, Carson says, that the House-Russia investigation must continue and that my colleagues on both sides should participate fully. We also heard this week from Indiana Senator Todd Young, who says he wasn't really watching the hearing that closely. I'm going to let the committees of jurisdiction uh, really follow that. I did not follow that testimony in great detail. I'm not sure we uh, learned a lot of, of new things from it, um, but... Um, you know, I, I'm still trying to allow my colleagues to sort through some of that who sit on the committees. I tried to watch as much as I could. I wasn't able to watch too much because I've been a little bit busy. But I think having a fake hearing like that and having it in the middle of this very important summit is really a terrible thing. They could have made it two days later or next week, and it would have been even better. They would have had more time. But having it during this very important summit is sort of incredible. And he lied a lot. Okay, right now we are joined by Adam Wren, a contributing editor at Politico and Indianapolis Monthly, and by Dr. Laura Wilson, political science professor at the University of Indianapolis. A lot of news here in D.C., guys. Laura, how damaging was the Cohen testimony? It depends on his credibility. I think that's really the big question. In terms of what was new that was presented, um, they did talk about WikiLinks and whether or not the president knew before he was president about uh, this dump of emails before the DNC convention. Um, I, I think it's, it goes to credibility, though, because he's getting 
getting ready to serve that three-year prison sentence. Right. We know he hasn't always been truthful. He obviously isn't friends with Trump anymore. He'd have incentive there. Um, the question is, what do you believe, and do you believe him enough? What about that credibility? He's been convicted of lying to Congress. Adam, was he credible? Republicans obviously raising that question repeatedly in the hearing. You know, I think the way that Chairman Elijah Cummings set up the whole committee hearing was, um, you know, fairly designed at kind of beating back that charge against this credibility. It seemed to me like he was credible. I mean, at this point, what is his motive to lie? He's going to prison for three years. Um, I thought the, the testimony showed him to be a broken man. Um, he seemed contrite and um, frustrated with how the last decade of his life turned out. All right, so as we mentioned, Andre Carson serving on the House Intelligence Committee. Now there are reports they'll call in, among others, the CFO of the Trump Organization to testify. He had been mentioned by Michael Cohen this week. Uh, Laura, another sign that uh, many of these congressional investigations are really just getting started? Well, absolutely. You heard names that Cohen had mentioned, and of course those are people that are going on a list of, okay, this is the next person we go to, the next person. Right. I think it raises a lot more questions than it answers, and that's part of what we'll have these um, these hearings for. Yeah, you saw the president there from Vietnam this week. We also asked Senator Young about the North Korea summit and about whether he'll vote to block the president's declaration of a national emergency on the southern border. First here, Senator Young on North Korea. I w certainly wasn't disappointed in the president. I do agree with the president, which is uh, sometimes you have to visit with people who are unsavory and sometimes you have to walk away from negotiations. I haven't made up my mind with respect to uh, the emergency declaration. I, of course, want to make sure that whatever I do is consistent with the law and constitution. Mm -hmm. Courts will show a measure of deference uh, to the administration on this. Courts probably do not want to be in the place of, of deciding what constitutes an emergency and what doesn't constitute an emergency. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I, uh, I, you know, trying to divine what courts are going to do is a difficult thing. I'm trying to follow the law in my own right without having it uh, refereed in the end uh, by the other branch of government. All right, all of this coming after the House passed a resolution blocking the national emergency. Thirteen Republicans joined Democrats voting for that resolution. All of Indiana's Republicans voted against it, including Congresswoman Susan Brooks, who wrote in a statement, strong borders must be in place in order to keep the American people safe, and the situation at our southern border can no longer be ignored. She says, I support the president's national emergency declaration designed to strengthen our borders with additional barriers as quickly and efficiently as possible. This bill now goes to the Senate, where already a few Republicans say they will vote to block the president's declaration. And Adam, we're still waiting to see, reading the tea leaves here on how Senator Todd Young might vote. Yeah, I think we'll learn a lot about uh, Todd Young this week or next week, depending on when the vote takes place. You know, he campaigned as someone who would be with Trump when he thought he was uh, right and would be against him when he thought he was wrong. And, you know, Young is a really a constitutional conservative, so depending on how he votes on this, I think that Indiana uh, voters will, will have a lot more data about deciding uh, his reelection fate. And, of course, he is also a member of Republican Senate leadership as well now. All right, up next, we're going to head to the State House. Governor Holcomb weighing in on the hate crime controversy as lawmakers return tomorrow for the second half of the legislative session. And we're talking about the debate over marijuana with the governor opposing efforts to legalize the drug. We're taking a closer look at what's happening in other states and what could happen here. the latest from the State House, where lawmakers are back to work tomorrow for the second half of this year's session. We'll talk with Matt Smith about that coming up, but first, Zach Myers, who asked Governor Holcomb about the controversy over the hate crime bill. 
Although he wouldn't commit to a possible veto, it's too early for the V word. Governor Eric Holcomb says he was not satisfied by the version of a hate crimes bill passed by the Republican-controlled Senate last week. Being vague about this does not get us off the list. Indiana is one of five states without a specific hate crime law. Senate Bill 12 passed 39 to 10 after it was stripped of a list of characteristics of potential hate crime victims, including race, sexual orientation, and gender identity. We were able to get a bill through um, that we haven't had to do, haven't been able to do in a couple of years. And so uh, the fact that the bill is still moving is a very good thing for us. The governor says this will be his main focus for the next two months, and he's prepared to personally testify before the House if needed. I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't rule it out. If it, if it, by the time we get to that point, if it's necessary, the answer is yes. But I think there's a, um, uh, certainly a possibility we could see some change in the language, and we would be very open to uh, taking a look at anything that the House is able to do. The debate has already put the governor at odds with some fellow Republicans and could continue to. We're not drones. We don't agree on 100% of everything. That's the beauty of this building and the conversations that mature over time. All right, Zach Myers reporting there on uh, the second half of the state house about to get underway, and pretty interesting remarks there from from Governor Holcomb talking yeah. about this hate crimes bill and how he may go down to the House floor himself to testify. That would be pretty unique. Not completely unheard of, right. but also not really that common for a governor to go down and testify himself. That shows the stakes he's put into this. We heard from House Speaker Brian Bosma um, last week, it was, saying the number of phone calls he's getting from business leaders saying, put this list back in. So at the same time, you have some members of the Republican caucus who, who are opposed to the list, some along with the governor who really want the list. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out over the next couple of weeks. And no doubt will be a big test of the governor's political muscle and political yeah. capital within his own party. Right. Uh, what else are you watching for here? Uh, in the second half of the legislative session. Listen, so we have, a, we have a number of key issues. Obviously, the state budget is going to be the main focus f for a lot of lawmakers. We saw the first part of this play out in, in terms of what the House passed as it now goes over right. to the Senate. Uh, I think a lot of teachers are going to be watching teacher the pay. teacher raise yeah. issue. Could there be a walkout, yeah. as we've seen in other states? I mean, I, I think teachers are, are gathering in March. They have a rally coming right. up. I think they're going to watch the process play out. Obviously, a number of other key bills we're watching, but obviously a lot of the oxygen, at least for lawmakers going to be focused on the state budget, right? Yeah, and that teacher issue. The governor yeah. talked about that. Uh, the governor also had some interesting <laughs> remarks on the topic of uh, marijuana legalization, something you've been reporting on. Yeah. Recently, a reporter actually asked him, yep. because the governor has, has been opposed to legalizing marijuana, and a governor asked him if he had ever smoked marijuana in the past. Here's what he said. Yes. Even though it's illegal? Yes. When did you use it? College. I'd like to be in line with federal law. And if federal law changed, it should change by being informed itself, not allowing some hodgepodge national effort to organically spring up because folks are looking the other way. So pretty noteworthy remarks there. I know he, yeah. you know, he was kind of lighthearted about that, but obviously his position hasn't changed by any stretch of the changed, imagination. Right. Uh, you know, and some call it a fallback. Uh, some see it as his firm position that if the federal government continues to keep its stance, he is going to continue to keep his stance, and it's going to be a tough sell for any type of legalization effort right. when the governor so strongly opposes it. And a lot of other states have legalized marijuana. In yeah. fact, you recently traveled to Illinois. Yeah, let's take a look. 
Another year, another attempt to legalize medical marijuana in Indiana. And anybody that knows anything about politics <laughs> knows that, you know, we're on life support right now. Flatlines. I think it's criminal that, uh, that I need to be living stress-free to heal and, uh, and in the state of Indiana, uh, as a veteran, with PTSD, I'm a criminal. Hoosiers like Terry Moore, a Vietnam veteran we first met back in December, depends on medical marijuana just to be alive to live their lives. Terry actually left Indiana to get it. I had to go to the state of Illinois to become a resident there. Illinois, one of 33 states to already have legalized medical marijuana along with our neighbors in Ohio and Michigan. In fact, Illinois just expanded its program to now allow residents who are prescribed opioids to have access to marijuana as well. So what's the holdup for Hoosiers? States with medical marijuana laws have a lot of problems. First, Governor Holcomb is opposed, demanding the federal government act first. That also puts a lot of uh, pressure and intimidation on other decision makers in the state. And there's also concern the legalization of any type of marijuana will lead to increased drug use, especially among teens. We can step in this room right here. So we decided to take a road trip to Illinois to check out their operations, their rules and regulations, and see just how officials there manage the marijuana being grown and sold in their state. This is Cresco Labs in Joliet. What we're looking at here is plants that have been in here for four weeks. The company, which recently went public, grows, cultivates, and sells marijuana with operations now in seven states. So yeah, now we've entered our largest flowering room. Um, you're looking at over 650 plants in this room currently right here. The Joliet facility runs inside a nondescript warehouse, and security, as part of Illinois state law, is everywhere, from building access to cameras. Yeah, yeah, multiple cameras in this one room. Uh, we have actually four cameras in this one room to make sure there's no blind spots whatsoever. Every inch of the building is under surveillance. Uh, we know where every inch of every piece of cannabis is in this facility at all time. Um, there's nothing going out the back door. Um, there's nobody smoking any type of product inside the facility or anything of that nature. Illinois is one of the most heavily regulated states. State officials inspect this facility every week alongside twice a month inspections from state police. And again, yeah, here you're just able to see at the final, this is the cannabis at the final stages of its life. Every gram of marijuana transported to dispensaries is moved in unmarked vehicles. and must be approved by state officials at least 24 hours in advance. There's absolutely zero chance whatsoever that somebody who isn't badged through the state could ever enter this facility. A recent report by the Illinois Economic Policy Institute found the benefits of legalization outweigh the social costs, saying there is no evidence to support claims marijuana legalization increases other drug use. And in Colorado, five years after that state legalized recreational marijuana use, a recent state report found teens aren't smoking more than they used to. Now, I do want to make it crystal clear, you know, that cannabis is not the magic wand, and yes, it can be abused. But when you look at it in its totality, the benefits far outweigh the negatives. Indiana may be no closer to legalizing marijuana, and to get a medical program up and running would take years. Yet supporters say they'll continue spending countless hours visiting and learning from states like Illinois in hopes of one day mirroring their highly regulated dip 
into mainstreaming marijuana. The more people we get to show this off to, um, the more they're able to kind of explain that it's not your dirt floor facility um, with a bunch of uh, hippie flags flying around. All right, so I talked about that, that Colorado study. Yeah. This was a state-sanctioned study as part of the state law, looking right. back on, on the five years. They also cautioned, though, that it's hard to draw any really tough, strong, big conclusions mm -hmm. about the effects yet of whether it's legalized medical marijuana, recreational, or medical, because we just don't have all the data yet. And, and I think that's one thing the governor hit on earlier this week, is we need more data and research from his position to even consider this yet. Pretty uh, fascinating yeah. debate that we're going to see how it plays out Definitely. Uh, over the next uh, few months yeah. and years. Um, as we head into the second half of the legislative session, uh, I'm sorry to say, but happy for you that uh, move, you're moving on to the state of Wisconsin, back it, closer to home to it, cover politics. It we're is going to miss you here. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah. We're, we're heading to Milwaukee. It gets us closer to family for both myself and my wife and, and our two girls. So it, it was a move that felt right at the time. It's yeah. hard to leave in focus, hard to leave Indiana. Been here for four plus years. It's been a, it's been a fantastic run. We've, we've traveled a we've lot seen a together, lot happen, haven't we? Over yeah, the last, the last couple of years. years, there's a lot of Indiana news, and I'm going to take a lot of that knowledge with me to Wisconsin because Indiana news isn't going to go away anytime soon. Well, you're going to be busy there in Wisconsin in terms yeah. of getting ready for 2020. Yeah. A lot of people here in Indiana also uh, talking about your news. Uh, let's look at this tweet here from Christina Hale, <laughs> one of our panelists, uh, former oh state lawmaker and candidate for lieutenant governor, who said. Uh, uh, on Wednesday, this active news day underscores the value of the professional and good-humored approach that Matt brings to news in these hyper-partisan times. He built trust with the public and community leaders. Indy's loss is Milwaukee's gain. And there was this from Senator Todd Young. Check it out. Hey, Matt, congratulations. I understand you have a new professional opportunity in the state of Wisconsin. We're going to miss you big time. Uh, you've been a real pro. Uh, you've asked hard questions, but fair questions. And I know you'll succeed in uh, your next home. So uh, if you ever consider relocating, come back to Indiana. We'd love to have you. All the best. You've made, you've made uh, a big a impact here, Matt. That's, even with people, you know, who, you know, in our job, kind. we hold people's feet to the fire We do, and that's, that's very kind to hear from, from the people we cover, and, and right back to the lawmakers we cover. Yeah. We appreciate their honesty and their trust with us right. to ask them the questions and to come on the show and, cool. and do what we do every week. We appreciate you and all thank the hard you. work you've done. Very it's kind. been a lot of fun. Thank you, and thank great you guy all here. And for watching. This, this guy sticking oh, around, come on. That's and, the best news of all today. And stick around, please, because we got more to come right after this. Some interesting polling numbers from New Hampshire ahead of the Democratic primary next year. Bernie Sanders from neighboring Vermont leads this poll from the University of New Hampshire. Sanders recently announced he's running, still waiting on former VP Joe Biden. You see Senators Harris and Warren third and fourth, followed by O'Rourke, Klobuchar and Booker. But look who's now polling at 1% tied for eighth place. South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, perhaps making some waves here. Adam and Laura back with me now. Adam, you've interviewed Mayor Buttigieg. His camp happy with these numbers? Yes. Um, you know, I think for anybody, if you told people in December that the South Bend mayor was going to be registering 1% in the polls in New, New Hampshire, ahead of people like Michael Bloomberg, who's in an adjacent state, they would have laughed you out of the room. Laura, what else stands out to you when you look at these numbers? Yeah, well, of course, nobody has a majority because right. there are so many different candidates, so many candidates here. Candidates, yeah, yeah and, but name recognition goes a long way. So you're looking at people who have nationally been known in terms of Biden and Sanders. Sanders. That's going to be a challenge for Buttigieg, but I also think it's an opportunity that he hasn't yet to been able to capitalize well, let's on. Let's talk about Biden. Meantime, the uh, former vice president getting some flack for saying uh, this about current vice president Mike Pence. He's a decent guy. Our vice president, who stood before this group of 
allies and leaders and said, I'm here on behalf of President Trump. And there was dead silence. So those words, decent guy, uh, really got picked up by some progressives, Adam, who didn't like that Biden said that uh, about Pence. Explain the dynamics here and what this could mean for someone like Biden in 2020 in the primary if he runs. You know, I talked to an Obama, a former Obama aide on Friday who told me that the way that Biden handled the fallout of this, apologizing to Cynthia Nixon on Twitter, was sort of a sign that he wasn't quite up to the news cycle in 2019, that he wasn't uh, equipped to sort of deal with attacks like this. Uh, it, was, it was rather ham-handed. The last time the vice president um, has talked with Joe Biden, I think, was in 2017. Um, but he's an old-school politician who handles people in a friendly way like that. At the same time, many people have said, is this where we are in politics where you can't call somebody a decent guy. Well, I think that is part of it here. Are we that polarized that you can't disagree with someone politically, but also say, I think they're a nice person or a decent, in this case, person? I think it's challenging. The party's definitely become more progressive. And and if you have that, just from a polarization perspective, it means now our politics have become so personal, we can't evaluate somebody aside from those perspectives. In the meantime, Vice President Pence was at CPAC this weekend, an annual gathering of conservatives as the VP and fellow Republicans work amidst all the other news in D.C to try and frame the message for 2020. We will keep on winning. All right, meantime, next week, current Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb will head overseas to talk about the Hoosier State in Europe, visiting France, Belgium, and Germany. We'll be meeting with government officials, business officials, saying thank you to companies that are already here, meeting some new um, friends and potential investors along the way. All right, so the governor heading overseas, uh, trying to bring business to Indiana. All of that... Amidst this hate crime debate, Adam, that many in the business sector are watching very closely. Yeah, you know, I was fascinated right after that uh, bill was stripped of its provisions. You would have thought that Governor Holcomb would have spent the weekend kind of, you know, whipping votes, uh, you know, but he went to D.C. for the governor's meeting, and now he's headed over to Europe. So it'll be interesting how he imposes himself in the process going forward. And we talked about the marijuana issue earlier. We'll talk more about that on our podcast. We'll be back right after this with this week's Winners and Losers. Stick around. Wrapping it up with this week's winners and losers, Adam. Winner, Pete Buttigieg, who got his CNN town hall a week from today. Losers, losers who need access to medical marijuana. I don't have a loser, but my winner is Governor Eric Holcomb for a statement about marijuana and especially the statement about federalism, which is a really constitutionally sound explanation. All right, we'll talk more about it on our podcast, and we'll see you again next Sunday in Focus. Thanks for joining us. on the podcast here now with Dr. Laura Wilson and with Adam Wren. Uh, we're talking about marijuana. You know, it was interesting Governor Holcomb was asked this week as he was discussing the fact that uh, these bills, these proposals would not move forward on medical marijuana or legalization. He said no, he wants to wait for the federal government to do it. But he was, he was asked point blank, has he ever smoked marijuana? He said, yeah, I, I did in, in college. Uh, just came out and, and said that he did that. We were talking earlier about how We've kind of come a long way since the Bill Clinton answer yeah. on that question, right? The, didn't I smoked, inhale. but I didn't inhale. Right. Yeah, and, and that caught major headlines. Yeah. And here, I don't know how many people even caught that the governor admitted to having smoked. But one of the things I, I liked about that is, first of all, that it doesn't is not as big of a deal as it was. And I think part of that's because in the last 10 years, you've seen so many different states progress in terms of legalizing either the medical or the recreational. The policies have changed. And actually, as far as 
government goes pretty quickly and from a state yeah, perspective. He, it was, what's interesting to me is he's actually the second Hoosier elected official in the month of February who disclosed their past medical mar or their uh, past marijuana use. The first one being South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg in his book, Shortest Way Home. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, he, he said he had uh, more than zero, but less than, you know, I, th I think something like 10 smokes. So. These are always very nuanced <laughs> answers. I was going to say, no one can account for sure. So. And Adam, you had a pretty fascinating article this, uh, this month in Indianapolis Monthly about Indiana's history with marijuana and the fact that many years ago it was actually grown right there at Connor Prairie. Yeah, yeah, you know, in the March issue of Indianapolis Monthly, where I'm on the masthead, the entire March issue is sort of making the argument for legalizing marijuana, and we look as part of that at the past of Indiana. Uh, Eli Lilly was once one of the world's largest growers uh, of, of marijuana for medical purposes. About 23 of their drugs had cannabis in them. They grew, uh, they grew it at a 156-acre farm in, um, in Greenfield, and then also at Connor Prairie as well. Um, and Eli Lilly, the third owner of the company in 1907, actually did his dissertation on medical marijuana at the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy. Fascinating, right? Of course, now uh, as a major pharmaceutical company, uh, someone you, you would guess stands against that sort of uh, legalization of medical marijuana. Um, where are we headed on this issue? A lot of other states uh, have legalized uh, marijuana either for medicinal purposes or recrecational. Matt Smith. Uh, uh, Matt Smith, I, I cry every time I, I say his name now that he's leaving us for Our Wisconsin, but he had a great piece on that uh, this past week um, about that topic and what's happening in other states. It seems like Indiana still may be a few years away from from this. I was going to say, I'll let Adam chime in afterwards, but I was going to say, I, we, we're always going to be towards the end of things like that. Uh, just from a social perspective, I think like culturally, as Hoosiers, we tend to be more traditional in weight. And Governor Holcomb's comments in terms of the federal government, it's still illegal from their perspective. I really appreciate that from a constitutional viewpoint, because, because that is. The states are supposed to fall in line there. Um, he thinks what other states have done is premature. But, but as a state itself, you think of like cold beer and Sunday alcohol sales, we're not exactly on the, the forefront of those kind of things. And I don't think we value that culturally. I don't, I don't think that's important yeah, the, for us the, to be the innovative leaders in policy. That's there, not important. There are some issues where you hear people talking about states' rights, and in this case, <laughs> right, Governor Holcomb says, no, we want to follow along with the federal government. I agree with Laura. If you just start to game it out, you, you could imagine that maybe next year we'll get to at least a summer study committee sure. on this issue, and then after that, possibly an assessment. And there's Republican buy-in. Jim yeah. Lucas has been pushing this yeah, issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the history of marijuana prohibition, uh, you know, the idea of race was really uh, race and, and kind of uh, criticizing people from Mexico who use marijuana was really a key part of that um, at the federal level in 1937 when the Marijuana Tax Act was uh, was passed. And so, you know, we it, even though there's the federalism angle, you know, I think there's a cultural acceptance now that exists in the zeitgeist that really hasn't been the case for maybe a decade. Pretty interesting. All right, so we wanted to talk about that a little more on the podcast. Let's also talk um, about just a wild week, right, in Washington. What, what stood out to you amidst everything that we saw between the North Korea summit and the Cohen hearings and where we could be headed now? I was going to say, the Cohen hearings were crazy for so many things. And I know uh, Todd Young had mentioned what, what more did we learn that was new, but there was a lot more, and certainly in terms of all the well, name you said he dropping. Didn't watch it. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, he wasn't right. really paying attention. Didn't of watch course, it, so. and we didn't learn anything. <laughs> so I'll pardon him for that. But uh, you know, in terms of WikiLeaks, which is getting into more of the Mueller, like how to how influential was Russia in 2016? Uh, 
uh, even the payment of money with the Stormy Daniels, the 130, and the payments back in installments of 35 to make it look like it was a, a legal retainer. Uh, and I agree with your point. You know, what does he have to lose at this point? I think the credibility will always be a question. That's sure. going to be something that he can be jabbed with. There was so much there. And he was. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, and, you know, I don't think we're going to have to take him at his word one way or the other because, you know, he mentioned that there were things that he couldn't talk about in that hearing because the Southern sure. District of New York is investigating them. And, you know, I, I think that sooner or later there's going to be cooperating evidence or there's not going to be. Yeah. Um, and so I think that we'll get a better picture of his credibility as time passes. And that's a really good point, too, because when you think of, like, oh, is this impeachable and all that, it's one person's testimony. Yeah. But if it does exist, if there is, if it happens, there is proof out there somewhere, and, and ultimately that will be corroborated. Yeah. You're right. And we'll see where it all heads. Um, thank you both for being here. We appreciate okay. it as we talk about another wild week Great. in politics in Indiana and beyond. We'll see you next week.